A few more minutes, please, Ma, cried John John, as his mother banged on his bedroom door. The sun is up, she shouted. Up, up, get up. Why are you still in bed? Are you waiting for it to come right inside and tickle your ass? She said as she burst into his room. A mother, at least a black mother, will do as she pleases in her house. And any young man who lives under her roof will have to live by her rules. He will only taste freedom when he leaves home or when he becomes the property of the woman he marries. Just a few more minutes, please, Ma. We're going to be late. Sablif to Ma. What's the belief? she asked. Up, I said. Five more minutes, please, Ma. Learn to kick the blanket, my boy, so you can have a long and peaceful sleep in your grave. But if you spend most of your life lying down, your ghost will come back to haunt us, she advised. All I asked for was five more minutes, and not the entire Sermon on the Mount, he thought. His mouth knew otherwise. It had learned from experience that you don't, you didn't utter such stupidity to my John John. She never slapped a cheek when a child talked back. She slapped the lips. Five more minutes. Please, my dearest mother, he begged. She went straight for the curtains and opened them. You know, ma, you can have an ex-girlfriend, you can have an ex-wife, but you can't have an ex-mother. If I don't get extra time from you, who will give me? She stood there, paralyzed by her son's words as they touched the delicate motherly nerve. For your sake, I hope you take nothing more than a sweet tongue from your father. Five minutes and no more, she said, and left the room. As soon as his mother closed the door, John John jumped out of his bed, his red underpants wet, and his Adam supple and soggy. He had added his stain to the 30-year-old bed, which had taught a lot of people many things. His sisters-in-law, those who went on to become other men's wives, and those who never got married. Different bodies had shaped it into a hammock-like dinghy, and sleeping on it required skill. The springs had lost their strength, permanently suppressed by the passions of young lovers on a voyage of self-discovery. He stood there, lost, as his mind drifted back to Angela, the woman who had visited him that night. He knew her well. She was 14 years his senior, always wore a rich, glossy afro, which was full of brill cream. Her skin color changed subtly with the seasons. In winter, she looked like a dark chocolate made with Criollo cocoa beans and the milk of a Messinese goat, imported all the way from Sicily. By the time it was at its peak, her skin had turned blacker than the sweetest mulberry. Like a gift unwrapping itself, she took off her clothes, revealing the suit that she inherited from Eve. That was the same suit that the first woman wore when she committed her first sin. Angela clutched, clutched onto the man's Adam with both her hands, as if she was preparing to receive grace. God created man, but woman is always perfecting him. She can make his heart beat faster. She alone has the power to turn a luggage into a hard worker or into a callous robber because she possesses a prize greater than all things. It is not the brain or the spirit of woman that man seeks, for no man buys a peach to enjoy its pip. Angela, 
a naked enigma and a promise of happiness, stood right there in front of him. Mouth slightly open, revealing pearl-white teeth. Her eyes were closed as if she was listening to music played by the angels in the heaven next door. She was at John John's mercy, his private buffet. She stood there for him to enjoy his visual feast, and when he was finished, she pranced to his bed, spinning like a ballerina on a stage for her only judge to satisfy himself. He looked at her Garden of Eden, right hip, left hip, Everest, and back to the Garden of Eden. She lay on her master's bed, arms wide open, and waited for him to do as he pleased. He watched, puzzled by every moment, and then she pounced like a Venus flytrap on a fly. His teenage body was locked in her big thighs and arms, and then she turned him over, pinned him down, and smacked him with kisses until he waited to collapse from a romantic asphyxiation. She turned him over and gave him the glory of manhood to be on top. Her shoulders were broad, broad enough to break the back of a minor. John John's schoolboy hands could not get a good handle of her. His tiny body rolled around her breast like a loose canister in a boat battered by waves. But he held on, safe in teacher Angela's hands. She grabbed John John's heart at him and squeezed it harder and then slipped it into the warmth of his sweet oil. Unaccustomed to such comfort, John John trembled and dropped his seed at her reception. Angela was gone. When his reverie ended, John John turned the mattress over. It had more stains on the other side, and an odd hole where a mouse had once lived before the mattress was recalled from retirement. Its color had faded. It was once ocean blue, but it now looked like a reservoir of, sweet, of sweat and dust. The first second of the last minute began. His mind seemed to slow down as he stood there, confused like a foal whose mother had suddenly died. The second second passed, and so did the third, the fourth, and when the fifth and the thirtieth second came, he wore his jeans on top of his wet underpants and left the room. Mm. Sure. Mm. Um, twelve minutes past twelve. I'm Pome Masheho, and you're on Wumandla. I know it's a different way of starting the show, but that's Muzikuzwayo. And that's the very first extract of his new ebook called Struggle Days. My guest today, along with Napo Mashiane, also a wordsmith, and we're talking about telling African stories. The reason I've asked the two of them to join us today is because Napo's got a play coming up called From the Village to the City. Muzi's book is called Struggle Days, and they're both about coming-of-age stories. And that is an amazing, amazing opening extract. And when I think about a cover that says Struggle Days, and then reading that first... Not the first thing that comes to mind. So why is your book called Struggle Days? Because it is about boys. It's about boys growing up and struggling through the maze of life. Uh, it's it's a it's a work of fiction. It's my first work of fiction. Having worked on on other books, uh, non-fiction books. Yeah. So but your name is synonymous with business books. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, but I I I, 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 my first script was not a business script when I started when I lived in Guatemala. Uh, and I've always wanted to write this. And uh, if you're a writer, you know, you will always do, you'll tell the stories of whatever you're doing. You know, um, great radio people write great books about radio. 
mm. and and that's that's what it is. So this is a story I've always wanted to tell, and uh, and now I've I've made the time to tell it. Is it like an autobiography? No, it's not an autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> not in the least. Uh, it's imagination. <laughs> there is always a problem when you you try to transfer. You try to move from non-fiction to fiction. People think that you're still telling a non-fiction story. But so I think in South Africa, for all of us, when we think struggle days, when we think the struggle, when we think that that's we don't think about coming of age stories. Mm-hmm. So how did you how did you juxtapose those two things? Because for me and every other person that sees that cover that says struggle days, the first thing that we think about is we think about apartheid, we think about struggle, we think about resistance movements, we don't think about young boys. Coming to, you know, coming into their their own, as it were, as mm. they grow older. Well, the first thing that I was told is that a lot of young people don't like to hear anything about the struggle, hmm. <laughs> and I thought that's great because then it challenges me as a writer to try and start, tell a story that would be interesting to people, because it is a great part of our lives of our history, uh, but also the struggle. It's not just about the police and all of the kind of thing. It's about these boys growing up and meeting women for the first time and knowing, learning how to deal with women. Mm. Uh, and that is all set during the, during apartheid days, of course, so that, that, you know, as you go along in the other chapters, you experience that, but that's the setting, but it's really about the boys becoming men. Hmm. Hmm. Was it easy going from fiction, which is about business hmm. and then writing this story? Um, I think I enjoy writing. But writing is, I never find writing easy. Uh, it's always <laughs> difficult. It's always challenging. I, I sweat like you won't believe before I, I, I finish a piece. Um, so easy, no, it was not. But it was a labor of love. I, I loved it. I have, it's been difficult to publish it because every day I see something else that needs to be changed and that could be better. And I said, you know, I'll take as long, t- as much time as, as I possibly can. It should have been up about an hour or two earlier today. <laughs> But again, it's yeah, to give other people a chance. But the link will come yeah, up. We'll yeah, put it on our. Right. <laughs> we'll put it, it on it WeChat. Been, we'll put it on our, um, on our podcast. Yes, it has been a labor of a labor of love. Um, this is, you know, telling a story that comes in from deep within, and you don't have to check any facts, and that's what makes it so difficult. Mm. And and um, what are you hoping when people read this book, young or old? What are you hoping that they take out of the experience? You know, for me, once you've written a piece, you've written a book, it's no longer yours. The reader has much an opinion on it as you do. And probably their opinion is better. And probably if you have to, to rank it, it's on a higher level. Because if, you've, if they've misunderstood you, it means that you've been inarticul- inarticulate in telling your story. So once it's out there, it belongs to the village. Mm. Wow. So this is an e-book. Mm. Yes. And it's free. That's right. It's free. It's free. <laughs> Why? Because when I was young, I used to t- like to tell stories and I never got paid for it. And I think um, with an e-book... So this is the beauty out, of Andrei, we don't uh, have those signs outside that say, turn off your phone. <laughs> so <laughs> while she finds her phone yeah. to turn it off. <laughs> yeah. But also... It's, you know, there's a whole infrastructure that's behind a book. The publishers, the bookshops, they all need to make a living. 
with the beauty of ebook is that you don't have to do that. One of the greatest things I've ever enjoyed in writing is when I had to make a choice on iTunes to say, is it a free book or is it for sale? I said, free. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's, it's for free. People can read it if they want to um, because we want people to read. And if we don't have to pay for the, for the infrastructure that supports just one book, um, please, let's take it. And what I um, so I'm gonna out you here. Baba. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna out you here as an Africanist in your tashiki <laughs> over there. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that that's always a criticism about local art yeah. is that it it doesn't it's it doesn't have its own identity just taken because young people now are all about hip hop. They're all about, and so we've lost a lot of our identity. Yeah. Um. Do you think that there is an opportunity in telling African stories mm-hmm. an African way, mm-hmm. like you do, mm-hmm. um, in the future? Oh, absolutely. The reason why we went on for hip-hop and all of those kinds of things is because I think it was an era of euphoria, of freedom. And art is at its best when it's protesting against something. Mm-hmm. Art is at its best when it's it, there's discontent or it highlights certain kind of discontent. And that's why, you know, there was no reason to be unhappy. There was Nelson Mandela who'd been released. You know, we were taking charge. But I do think now that uh, art will rebel against the materialism that has come up with hip-hop, all the big cars that everybody sells and the big chains and all of the golden chains. So now it's protest. Hip-hop started as protest on Mm -hmm. itself. And not only did it become mainstream, it sold out, but art is at its best when it's protesting against something. Mm. And do you feel that your book now um, fits into that mold of protesting against, rebelling or breaking the mold? Um, you know, I'm, I think I'm the eternal unhappy guy <laughs> about the situation. <laughs> you know? Uh, it, it's a terrible thing because you see bad where even there is, there is good, you know, uh, in society. But it's not because you want to see bad, but because you feel it. You feel it more. Um, in LA, the first people I saw were the, were the people who lived on the streets. The people I spoke to were the people who lived on the streets. You feel it. You just wired that way. And, and I think, uh, I was driving up in Melville and I saw a whole lot of people sleeping out in the open as if it was in a hospital. Um, a lot of people probably won't see that. But if you're a writer, you feel it and then you see it. And that's what I think it is. Mm. And so is, is your book, what, the rest of your book, so that, that opening extract that yeah. you just shared with us, the little boy um, being woken up by his mother. And that's so, like, it's so real. Like mm. I can, I, I can see my mother waking me up because mm. I don't know what it is about black mothers and waking children up. <laughs> <laughs> Violently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe Napo's going to tell us about this. <laughs> this. Yeah. Yeah. She's a mother. So yeah. she'll tell us about this just now. <laughs> but I can see that and I, I, I know it mm. for a person outside of the black experience. Mm. How easy will it be to, to, to fall to fall into this book and be lost in it, do you think? You know, I tell a story because it gives me goosebumps. It may not do the same thing to the next person. I'm not responsible for that. 
uh, I told the story because I felt I wanted to tell the story. Like I could tell you a story in a car or we're sitting here and it's an incredibly boring story, you know. But I've told you the story. Otherwise, I'll just be doing a commercial job. And I've done enough of that. <laughs> now I want to tell stories like I've seen them, like I've experienced them. But I think any good story transcends across, whether it's race or whatever. Uh, people who live in different countries, who've never seen something, who've never seen an experience. And I think a book is a theater of the mind. People will be able to create that situation inside them. And if you tell people something that they know, then they find it incredibly boring. So as a writer, you must tell the story to someone who knows it, but still find it enjoyable, and someone who doesn't know that experience, but understand it or identify with it. Your favorite part about writing this book? The favorite part about writing the book is like asking me who's my favorite child. <laughs> uh, I haven't. It's, I could have asked you which is your favorite book. This is your fourth book. Even in the chapter, <laughs> and the, every word counts. <laughs> and... And it's, you know, if, if, if that was the case, asking which is your favorite child, at, at best it'd be politically incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> at worst, it's totally immoral. Okay, so what was your favorite part? <laughs> I enjoyed the whole book. I enjoyed writing every word, I promise you. And I think part of it, a lot of it is enjoyment, but there are parts where, there are times where it is painful. Because you've got to write, you've got to make it work, and you find the sentence doesn't work. And I, uh, I started writing many years ago, but I still consider myself an apprentice, and I always say that. And I think uh, I can safely say that my pre my apprenticeship, at least, I'm going to the second part of it. Um, it's and you find that some words don't work, some sentences don't work. You find that the word break is wrong, or the sentence break is wrong. Um, and then I give it a I, I I give it a chance for a week, and see if I can sort that out. I can fix that. This time I don't have a client and a deadline. I think I can take as much time as I want. So how long have you taken to write the book? Oh, for me, this book has been in, I've been writing this book for a very long time. I actually lost the manuscript. <laughs> and thank goodness I had the sense of emailing it to myself. And I was able to go into the sent box, uh, box the outbox, mm. the sent box actually, and, and, and try and copy it from that. But it had been PDF, so I had to copy that. Uh, and then after that, fix every comma, fix every apostrophe, but you know, individually. Um, so there were times where it was painful, but it is a labor of love. Okay, so I hope later today, when the link is up, I'll get the opportunity to read everything in its entirety. But we've we've had lots of conversation about this book as you are writing it, and one of the things I'm always saying about it is that for me, it's such a it's such a visual book. Every everything that I've ever read of it or that you've ever shared about it has been such a visual thing. You could make a movie out of this book. <laughs> like a South African version of um, what happens in Vegas. <laughs> we should stay in Vegas. Yeah. Would you, would you ever consider the leap of taking any of your books and kind of making it into a visual? I get incredibly bored at a set. Uh, I get bored like you won't believe. So I'll <laughs> never direct. This from an ad man. This, this from an ad man of 20 years. How many commercials later? Yeah, I discovered that very early on. <laughs> uh, I wanted to do movies, but discovered I was in LA. 
And then I, that's how I got into advertising. And then discover that I get excruciatingly bored, painfully bored at the set. So I will never direct a movie. Uh, but if someone wants to do it, hey, they're welcome. You know, and that's, that's their thing. But you know what you have in mind and what someone else interprets. The two are very different. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll, I hope I'll have the, or well, I know I will have the, the grace to say that's how they saw it and that's how it should be. So I'm, go- I'm going to use a quote that's actually, I, when I was reading up all of the various things about yeah. Napo, um, <laughs> when I first met Napo, when I first saw her, there was a thing. It, it was like after Love Jones and everybody was into poetry and into <laughs> deep thinking and all of that, kind of in the early 2000s, all over. She was part of this collective called Fila Sister, <laughs> so, which was also like everywhere you went, every poetry evening, there was always these Fila Sister girls, Fila Sister girls. Um, but I, I found it so intriguing that when asked about writing, that writing is an act of expelling or emptying oneself. After writing this, your first non-autobiographical work of fiction book <laughs> um, about a boy from Springs, <laughs> do, you, is, do you feel a piece of yourself in that writing when you read it back? You know, I try as much as I possibly can, or I've tried as much as I possibly could, to divorce myself from it, to be a dispassionate observer of this situation, where, of the scenario, of the different people who are interacting with, with themselves. And I've tried to be as impartial as possible, without passing any judgment on, on a particular character. And there's a policeman, a white policeman in here, and I love him. Uh, and, and, and I want him to succeed in whatever he's doing. Uh, so he's doing his job. He's enforcing apartheid. And I must empathize with him and understand him. Uh, and never say he was wrong. Mm. So that's my job as a fiction writer. At least I see it as an apprentice <laughs> fiction writer. That <laughs> <laughs> I've got to be as dispassionate as possible. Because People are driven into doing certain things uh, by things that we may not understand or know. So I have to be fair to the to the characters. Mm. Sure, that's deep, Dis- mm-hmm. dispassionate. That I, I would, I've never thought of. I've never thought of writers in that way as having to kind of distance themselves from from the work that they are writing. So that's a very interesting thought. Well, my view is that it's not my point of view. Is the character's point of view, uh, and it may be strong, and some people may not like it. But that's what happens with humanity. Humanity, isn't it? We don't like each other, or some people like each other. Some people love each other, and I've tried to to paint that as fairly as possible. In telling your story, in telling this story, mm-hmm. the experience between writing fiction and having written three very successful. Non-fiction books. Mm. Which do you prefer? When I die, I'd like to die as I'm writing a fiction story, <laughs> and hopefully you find my head, you know, lurching forward in front of, on the keyboard, and there's like lots of X's or whatever the case may be, <laughs> and it was a fiction story. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it was something that I dreamt up. Wow. Mm. 
I really can't wait to read the book. I really, really cannot wait to read the book. But and and the reason why um, I asked Napo is because her story, slightly differently, um, is is also the story of a what did you say? Jim comes. To, did you say Jim or did you say Jane? Jim comes to Joburg. You know the old thing of from Kohai, from the rural area to coming to Joburg for the first time and. Just that as well, just what comes with it. Mm. Napo, so first of all, I mean, I'm not sure about that Jim comes to Joburg because you're from Soweto. You were I born know. in Soweto. I was born in Soweto, but I grew up in Kwakwa. So, hey, <laughs> that says something. Um, for, for, and you, I mean, you're well known on the stage, locally and internationally. This upcoming uh, production mm. And I'm going to call it a production Because it it's production. not You're really right. a play no. It's not just poems it's <laughs> a, What is it? Um, it's spoken word uh, But I, I think um, Dramatized poems And choreographed poems um, Some people call it choreo poems I call it poetra Because I'm both a poet and a theater maker So you can't separate the drama Within my poetry or the poetry within my drama. So I've, I've just really missed the two worlds. Um, and really trying to experiment with other things like dance, music, and, um, just, yeah, just trying to have a sense of what poetry c- can be more than what we normally think it is. I think more like what Moose is exp- really doing, like ebooks, you know, it's really taking and, and trying to, I think trying to, uh, f- I don't want to say fit in, but keeping up with the times, right? Um, you can't always box yourself and think that every person will come to a poetry open mic session, that actually a poetry show can equally be like a comedy show or be like a proper like theater show with beginning, middle, and end, and with all different elements and all different emotions in it. So that's basically what I'm doing. Are you going to be doing any works from from the anthologies we know from <laughs> some of your old stuff? So, your first book, yeah, Cave, Cave Speaking Metaphors, and then I fed songs for my girlfriends, and the the one that I'm working on, which is part of my thesis, um, but that's why it's from the village to the city. Um, all the poems that got us so to, you know, what really inspired me to become the kind of writer that I am. My mother tongue, the images of Sosotu, uh, riddles and proverbs, Sosotu, those are going to be the first part. And the second part is going to be the influences of the world, the hip hop, the slam poetry and, 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 and other things that I'm pushing myself. I've never done them. So I hope they're going to work like doing poetry with tap dancers without anything, just really experimenting and again, trying to, to grow as well as, as a performer and also as a poet and trying to say, don't box, don't box. The world is bigger. And so your play is, um, you, what the, uh, poetra, I like poetra, 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 uh, yes, is, is very much about you. It is, it is definitely about me. And, and, and it's also part of, I think part of what I've been struggling with i think we belong in a world that boxes and they want you either to be a poet or to be a theater maker but what if those things they exist in you it's like if you can speak more than five languages it's the same thing what what what's your favorite you know like you know you can't ask me between poetry and theater what's my favorite they're both in me and i love both of them and i want to celebrate both of them and i I really want to grow in both of them so for me it's constantly trying to to even prove to myself that it's okay actually to be Diverse as an artist, as a creative soul, and to to tap into different worlds. I mean, if I tomorrow want to do film, you know, 
uh, maybe polyfilm. Why not? I don't know. I've never, oh my God, I just thought about it now. <laughs> but what if I do that? You know what I mean? Um, but it's like constantly trying to, to grow as an artist and to think out of the box and, and trying to, to show the possibilities of what something that is a norm can become something that is great. And performing locally versus mm-hmm. performing internationally, what, um, for you have been the differences in the way that audiences accept your work? Well, first thing I want to comment is that every time I perform home, you actually get paid more here than overseas. Really? Yes. And that's what people don't realize. I mean, we travel the world. So when I get um, to be invited in an international festival. You just I, came back from the UK. I just came back from the UK. It's really just to go for networking purposes, just to grow, to, you know, just to just sometimes actually to even have a paid off holiday. <laughs> but here at home. This is where the money is. And, and I think we sometimes underestimate South Africa. South African clientele, uh, corporate, and including some, you know, really sometimes the government, they really pay well for their artists than when you go overseas. Um, so when I go, really, when I go overseas, just to really see the world. But to make money, I, I'm here. I want to be here home. Um. <laughs> and of course, in terms of the audience, Pumi, is, is that, that here, when you stand on stage and you talk about something, the immediacy of the audience and in terms of receiving it, you're talking about something that is part of their world. So it gets quickly received. Um, when you go overseas and you perform, the beauty is you get to give people a different page of a South African book, right? We have so many things that the outside world gets bombarded about South Africa, both positive and negative. But w- so when you go outside, you become this mirror, a reflection of what exactly is happening in, in the ghettos or the townships of, mm-hmm. of South Africa. And then people get in awe of the elements of truth. What are you talking about? Crime? Or are you talking about love? Or are you talking about coming of age? At the end of the day, you become the immediate, truthful, most honest, sincere reflection of your people, uh, which is a big responsibility. When you're here at home, it's very celebratory. It's very more about engaging and sharing ideas that we share when we are at Viva's place and, you know, talking. I take those conversations. When you hear them on stage, it's like Napo's talking about what we spoke about. And it's nice that Napo found words, you know, to... Record what we're talking about. So it's, it's, it's two ways, but either way, you always are a reflection of who you are, where you come from and the people that you reflect. And when you're on stage, you're does it, does a piece of you <laughs> remain behind on that stage do you, every time? All the time. I think it's like being in a relationship and sleeping with someone, right? A part of you uh, is always uh, left uh, in that person. <laughs> Look at that. Whether you like it or face. not. <laughs> I, I don't know, right, Muzi? Let the record say I said nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think it's been like in a relationship, every person that you've been in a relationship with or in a friendship with, whether it was intimate relationship or just an interaction, there's a part of that person that you walk away with. And I kind of feel like that's what happens on stage. So I think the butterflies before I perform is the fact that I know that I'm going to expose myself. I'm going to be stripped naked. naked. I'm going to be the Angela <laughs> with this book. I'm just going to stand there and say, look at me and eat of me. And, 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 and when I disappear from that snippet of a dream, what you left with is what you as an audience choose uh, to be left with and what you chose to walk away with. Um, and then, the most then thing for me as an artist is trying to get out of that, to recollect myself, to re-fully feel myself again because a part of me has been given away, whether it was a bad experience, uh, a broken heart or um, a, a very 
painful experience that I shared with all I have to go backstage. I have to go back to normality. I have to come back to you as my friends and say, please feed me again. Are you um, going into this DVD recording? So for the first time ever, you're, di- you're recording a um, DVD d- yeah. in two weeks? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Um, it's happening at Joburg Theater. It has never been done. Um, spoken word together with music and everything else. Um, I don't know what's going to become of it, but I know what I want of it. And I want it to be an, a journey and experience that each and every person is going to be there. will never forget in their lifetime. I hope it's a point of reference for younger poets and younger theater makers. So I, the, the reason I've asked the two of you mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> together is because for me, you, you do the same thing in terms of being ambassadors mm-hmm. of a, of an experience that a lot of people, my mic's too low, um, being ambassadors of an experience that a lot of people kind of look at from the outside and are not sure how to engage Mm -hmm. in for you. Any one of you can start with the answer. Um, Which is your proudest moment of what you've put out there about yourselves, about your work, about your life to date? I think my truth, because and I say my truth because my truth doesn't necessarily mean it's your truth, right? If I have told my story, it means I have reclaimed and t- took ownership of that story. And it definitely also means that, um, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's how people receive my truth. It's their own opinion, but I've told my truth. And it means I'm going to sleep peacefully at night because I didn't commit self-suicide. I didn't gag myself. I told my truth. I didn't censor myself. I told and I did what I wanted to do. And every time I have done that, no matter how painful or happy clappy it was, I'm able to sleep at night. I face my nightmares and change them into beautiful dreams. Wow. Muzi? You know, I never have something that I'm proud of. I do it. Uh, I, I always imagine, I never think a cat becomes proud for catching a particular bird. You, know? <laughs> you just catch it and eat it and you move on. Because that is my job. Uh, I love what I do and, and make sure that it's the best of my ability. But I keep on moving on. You know, I think Mandela, the one thing that really inspired me in, in um, Along Walk to Freedom is when Mandela talks about getting to the top of, mount, of the mountain and finding other cliffs or uh, peaks. Then you have to go, keep on going to those peaks. And I think that's, that's, that's always been my approach, that let's find other peaks. And so I do something, hopefully bank it, like I'm unable to bank this one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think, no, but after today, let's, we're clear. The, are people listening to the show? There are people want who want to read this book. Can we please get the link? Please. I'm putting you on the spot today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's such a week. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, Advertising, you're driven by deadlines. <laughs> <laughs> Can I be free for a change? For a, for a, not for today. A while? <laughs> not today. Not after what you're I will respect that. But I tell you what, um, nobody knows the hour. <laughs> <laughs> not the time. Not the time. <laughs> that's the writer, right? Hey, Muzi. <laughs> no, Muzi, that's wrong. I'm going to, you know, because I asked you to read a piece of, I'm going to put Napo on the spot. Oh. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Well, just a w- one of the pieces that one can expect to hear. Uh, I'm not going to ask you for my personal favorite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm just going to ask you to just, Jay, well, just a quick. 
one minute on, of what I can expect. If I've never seen mm-hmm. Napo, if I've never seen Phila Sister, if I've never read any of your books, listening in today, what can I expect coming up? Okay, um, Mudumo. Every African child is born with art embedded in their blood. So when we dance, dust greets our hands. We paint every shaft of grass, draw each stretch mark on our mother's thighs. We are walking bookshelves, the creots, spiritual magis, um, tenor myths and legends into true portraits. And like real storytellers, we forge spider webs in silence near the gutter in the dark. Mm. At dawn, before the whole world rises from its deep sleep, mm. we mm. mold and yield through riddles and metaphors. Rimudumo, mino, mogetito, lima, Godilo. We 20 years, right? Uh, 20 songs, 20 dance moves. And we know that there are no footsteps of history that cannot be turned into any art from village blues, township slogans, city sensation, village vibrations. We are flooding, flowing. We are walking, living libraries. Yeah, I got it. That's one of the new poems. Oh, wow. But we are. <laughs> we are artists. We are artists. <laughs> oh, wow. That's nice. That's oh, nice. Lovely. Thank you. It's beautiful. <laughs> Sunday.
such a nice song. Malay from the Free State. Just because we're talking about telling African stories. Um, it's called Kimu Africa, which is the Sutu um, phrase that says, I am an African. Very nice, Duncan. Well done. But now we're going to a, a segment that uh, Muziz convinced me. It's probably going to be a segment that we're going to do when we interview individuals like this. And it's called, and the music was really, really bad. Because we're talking about experiences and coming of age. Uh, Muzi, you've got two songs from when you were growing up and coming of age, mm. which um, the music was really, really, really bad. Absolutely. <laughs> First, before you play the song, tell us about it and and then play it. We're going to play a little bit of it and then we're going to go to two songs, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. right. <laughs> well, the first time was, well, Bob Marley was big, you know, Bob Marley and the Wailers. Mm. And Peter Tosh then broke uh, broke away from the Wailers uh, because he had a big fight with uh, Bob Marley. And he went on and, and a lot of people loved Peter Tosh. But this one song, I think, was really, really bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> must I play it? <laughs> okay, it's called Okay, first let's hear the song Reggae my lighters. <laughs> Reggae my lighters. What crap is that? <laughs> it's so wrong. It's so wrong. Funny, funny I had a funny, funny feeling. I went to the doctor this morning and it's like, it's, it's in my bones. In my, I mean, the music was really bad. <laughs> and you thought that's right. And the bad thing is that you played off an LP. And so the sound was not so good. And because English is not our first language, <laughs> you always put in your own words, isn't it? <laughs> but Rick and my light is because then Rick and my light is arthritis. So, kind of so this is what was blaring out the speakers back then. Absolutely, especially when you're doing your garden. And the second song has a little bit of a story, which is linked to Struggle Days. Absolutely. Um, the second song 
was so during about the struggle was like going on the bureau of information put together a song they got a lot of musicians to do like a we are the world type thing you know a uh, quincy jones one but trying to Shall tell everybody no let's not out them let's not out them and it was you know geeks. for all of us get a brighter future and there was this white guy who used to sing, I remember very well, like, kakajile. <laughs> you don't know what the hell is that, but you wanted to say, <laughs> wanted to say kakazile. But then somebody in the UK did a song, so that was called the Apartheid song. Sure. Then somebody in the UK did a song as an Apartheid, as in help Apartheid. Uh, let me see if I can, I can play that uh, for you. I've got it here. Um, <laughs> It's, wow. let, let me see if I can. If I can so it was it. like USAID for South Africa. South Africa, for that's apartheid. right. Apartheid. So it was like USAID for apartheid, you know, uh, type thing. So, so I think that's going to take some time to, to load, but let, let's see how that goes. That's the beauty of Unradio, isn't it? Yeah, that's the beauty of Unradio. Okay, I think it's, uh, it's getting up there now. Um, if you give me a few seconds. But I think um, that's what was happening, is that there was such a big force against the party. It was the, it was the, the dying dogs of apartheid. Mm. I must say, there was a time that I didn't believe that apartheid was going to go. Really? In our lifetime. Really? You know, we had a very strong apartheid government. And I remember them playing very, you know, f- flying airplanes one morning. You know, the, the cheetahs over Guatemala. Because Guatemala was very, was very rough. I mean, uh, it was really tough. Mm. And the, the apartheid government looked... Uh, as if it was not, it was going to be, it was going to be po- possible to overthrow them. And Mandela was still languishing in jail after so many years. Uh, many other people had died by then. Uh, and let's see if we can. I think that that's, for me, one of the things about, um, your book is mm. that, you know, we kind of think, when I think of back to struggle days, is it up? Yeah, it's up. Okay. I'm heading for South Africa, I'm off to catch me flight I left behind me conscience, so now I'm travelling light People like to hate us, they say we're not too bright But now we've lost the freighters We've ended up all white All white We're breaking down the tight. We're going to help the blacks We're doing it for freedom And 80 grand less tax We don't know much about it but one thing is for sure, it gives us all a great excuse to miss the West Indies tour. Well, when I'm in South Africa, they like a macho stuff. And I'm allowed to drink with him, because this is only bad. The alcohol arises, a British lion's blood. It makes us drop our trousers and fancies all about. <laughs> We're breaking down apartheid with all our famous names. You love this song. I love this song. What did you tell you? I love this song. No, the music was really, really bad. It don't sound so bad. Which when we think about, you know, when we when we think about the music when we were growing up, we we only ever remember the good ones. So um, we'll be having this lot again next time when we have uh, walk a mile in another woman's shoes. Every time we have a guest come through to tell us about their life experience, we are definitely going to ask them to bring along um, two or three versions of and the music was really, really bad. Yeah. So look forward to the next episode. <laughs> but before you go, just um, one, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, you know, when we think about 
apartheid and we think about the 80s for me that's as far back as i'm willing to think <laughs> that i can't think actually um it's like this crazy time that was awful and everything was so terrible and so bad and one of the things about your book having seen the extracts that i've seen is it's also there was a there were people living there there were people living a life oh, having yeah. fun growing up and still living the same way that we're living today, maybe with not as much freedom of movement, but in the grand scale of lives. things, you are living your we lived lives. lives. It's difficult, but we lived our lives. And I think, um, in my opinion, there were pockets of people whose brains went damaged by apartheid. I think a lot of us are, but there were those who weren't. And I think largely because of our mothers. If I have a minute or so, I'd like to read a quick one here. The boy took a deep breath, his secret now out like a fart, only waiting for her indignation. They say a mother is God's ambassador to earth. She gives life, and so God called her mother or my other. They say God is love, and true, mother is love. She feeds her baby her own spirit, which is mixed with her milk, and then oozes through her breasts. So God is woman. Indeed, if he is woman, is she volatile too? Does God ever feel powerless? Does she take sides in human conflict? If God is woman, does she cry when man shows his inhumanity to man? If God is woman, does she err? Did God create Hendrik Vervoet? And did she create him in her own image too? Because if she did, then she is an ugly God. Was it a mistake or did she create him with intention? If God is love, then why did she create hate? Perhaps for the same reason that she created night to compete with day. Could there ever be good in hatred, much as there is good in the night, so man could rest? Only God knows, but what we know is that God is great, and that her other is also great. We know mother would not exist without God, but God chose mother to show her existence. Hmm. So nice. It's like you were mother yourself. <laughs> I'm a dispassionate observer. <laughs> 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 but thank you for coming to t- thank you for coming to tell your stories. Thank you for thank telling you your, for your your African stories, and I hope that the listeners um, tune it, download the books, Napo the the, the recording, the show, yeah. the recording. Twenty eight, twenty nine, uh, May. I'm sorry, why am I saying May? Oh my God, twenty eight, twenty nine, November. In two weeks, <laughs> I think I'm, I'm in denial. <laughs> Joe <Joburg> Theatre, <laughs> eight o'clock, live DVD, Napo Mashiani live on stage. <laughs> <laughs> Come and participate Download the book It's called Struggle Days by Muziku Zwayo uh, From the Village to the City By Napo Mashiane uh, Participate, be part of the story Be part of mm-hmm. our own African story Thank you for tuning in uh, This was Wumandla and I'm Pumi Mashiko I'll be back again next week